<clears throat> well, good morning uh, and happy Easter to all of you. Uh, I, I was with Chuck for a couple of hours yesterday, and um, if there was any way he could be with you, he would very much uh, want to do that. But this was a decision really out of love for you, uh, knowing that he, he wasn't really up to doing it. Uh, but I, I think he's on the mend now. Um, uh, and I think Chuck probably asked uh, several dozen people to preach. Uh, everybody was busy. So <laughs> here I am. Um, Marsha and I were talking this week about uh, my dad. My dad was uh, John Wayne and Santa Claus together in one human being. And he was a storyteller, unlike anybody. I mean, you would feel like you were there, smelling the smells, feeling the feelings. It was truly a, a remarkable thing that he could do. Uh, I grew up on 33rd Avenue and Glendale, which was way out there uh, back in those days. And uh, people would come in the springtime and in the fall and sit in the backyard and hear him tell these stories. And this, this past week, Mark and I were driving down the road she said, oh, I miss your dad. And I miss him so much uh, as well. He came for uh, one of my birthdays to celebrate a birthday. And he uh, unexpectedly died in his sleep. And um, it was a, a huge loss for us. But uh, Marshall said, I wish he would tell the dog story again. Now, I told the dog story the last hour. And uh, it's obvious that I should not tell him the dog story. So I'm not telling the dog story. But in my estimation, it was a classic, but not everybody would agree with me. But you know, the, the stories never get old. Uh, we just think back over them and, and they just never get old, funny, sad, you know, just awesome. There's another story that has never gotten old, even though it happened 2,000 years ago. Uh, this is the 44th year that I've had the opportunity to preach an Easter message. And I preached about the same thing every Sunday, every Easter Sunday, for 44 years. Why is that? Because it's the crowning moment in Christianity and because it's the story that never gets old. I'm going to tell it from 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, today and invite you to go with me into that passage and let's listen to the Apostle Paul as he is teaching, preaching to Corinthian Christians. Uh, today Corinth is in uh, Greece and uh, so he was preaching to those people uh, and this is what he said. Now <clears throat> I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. Here's the message that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, and 
that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, which, as you probably know, was a name for, for the apostle Peter, Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers in one time, or at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the 12 again, last to me, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. All right, this is Paul's message. Uh, I don't know the passage in scripture that more succinctly tell the story. Uh, verse 1 again, if you would, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. The word gospel is an interesting word because it seemed to have lost its meaning to many of us. Gospel. What does the word gospel mean? Well, to some people, it's a genre of music. Gospel music. Not my favorite, but it might be uh, yours. And then there uh, is uh, four, verse 4 books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all called Gospels, and they are in that they contain the Gospel. There's even a, a term that means absolute certainty. Now, that's the Gospel. I, I, I'm telling you that that's the Gospel. But that's not the Gospel. So what is the Gospel? Well, I want to give you four words, just four words, that summarize the Gospel. And if you would remember them, even write them down, if you would remember them, they will give you a track to run in when you share the gospel with others. And it could be that you really don't know what the gospel is. I'd love to share it with you in these four words. The first is God. Second is man or humanity. God, man, Christ, Number three, and number four, response. All right, what are they? Uh, God. The Bible says that God created everything from nothing. And by the way, you have a better idea of how it came about. God created everything from nothing, including humanity. And he said to humanity, you can have everything that I have created for you, except this one thing. And I'm putting a limitation on this one thing for your own good. Now, as human beings are, we were tempted, they were tempted to take that one thing, the very thing that God said no. And God said to them, in the day that you take of that, you will surely die. And yet, nevertheless, they questioned whether God would really say that, do that, and they took of that one thing and they died. Not physically, but died in their relationship with God, spiritually. And ultimately they would die physically. God, man. So we have God creating, putting limitations, man rebelling against God, and now in that state of rebellion, God, man, Christ. There was nothing that human beings could do to make themselves right with God again. After all, they were all already sinful and unholy 
and God is holy and God is righteous. There was nothing that we could do or give him to settle things. And so what did he do? God's plan was always that he might come in, come here to be among us, to have our feelings, to share our sorrows, our temptations, to, to share it all, yet never to sin. And then to pay that price, that penalty, that God said in the beginning, in the day that you do that, you'll surely die. He would come to do to, to die in our place uh, as our substitute. And so God, man, Christ in response. This is what brings it all to today. Response is, God says two things. Number one, you need to change your mind. You need to change your mind about Jesus. You need to change your mind about life. You are not in charge of the world. You are not even in charge of yourself. So if you change your mind, you turn from sin, and you turn to trust that Jesus came to die for you in your place. And you're giving yourself to him in trust. And the result is that that death he died in our place becomes effective in our own life. So that basically is the gospel. God, man, Christ, response. Now, Paul is dealing with a particular aspect of that gospel. And he says in verse number three that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scripture. Uh, I think every word of the Bible is important, but sometimes there's little words that get by us. And we kind of, we, we, we let them escape, if you would. Uh, prepositions in that way particularly and there is one here at the perfect example. If you'll notice, it says that Christ, verse 3, that Christ died, here's the word, for, for our sins. The word for here means on behalf of. On behalf of. So what's being said here, Christ died on behalf of us for our sins. Uh, the point is that Jesus was the substitute. In fact, when theologians talk about this, they talk about the substitutionary atonement, being made right with God as Jesus came to be our substitute so that when we trusted in him, that substitution would, would become for us, that our sins would be covered under that substitute. Now, I have a, a question that I'd like to explore just a minute with you. And that is death. What, why? Why that? I, I mean, we couldn't go out after God, but God came for us. So why death? Why as our substitute? Well, that really gets us into uh, remembering things that we studied in the Bible. Take, for example, way back in the book of Genesis. Uh, it begins telling the story of substitutes dying in our place. And all of these, year after year after year, 
are always pointing to the coming of the Lamb of God, Jesus. Uh, so uh, the Bible is now preparing the hearts of people to understand what Jesus would do. Uh, take, for example, in the book of Genesis, we had the idea of, uh, of Abraham going up Mount Moriah with his son. God having said to him, you love your son so much, now I'm calling on you to take your son and offer him as a sacrifice to me. And we can't fathom the idea in this day, but that's what happened in that day. And Abraham is now carrying his son up to that place on Mount Moriah, and as he's ready to offer his son as a sacrifice, God stops him, and God points to the ram that is caught in the, in the thicket. And so God says, now take this ram as a substitute for your son. And the ram became the substitute. The death of the ram became the substitute for Abraham's sin. You see, uh, the offering of his son. Or we could talk about the book of Exodus. The Jews now are, uh, after 500 years, live in uh, Egypt. And they are in slavery. And it was God's will to let the people go. And to hear uh, Charles Heston's word here. Let the people go. You'd have to watch the movie. And obviously, you, you have it. Let the people go. <laughs> and so, uh, and that's what God said to say to Pharaoh. And finally, to get Pharaoh's attention, to move his heart, uh, God prepared for something called the death angel to pass over all of Egypt, taking firstborn sons. Now, that would be, there would be an exception to that. And that exception would be that lambs would be slaughtered, their blood would be taken, again, showing the seriousness of sin. Their, their blood would be taken, and it would be sprinkled or applied on the doorpost of the house, and where that sacrifice had been made, the death angel would pass over that and not take the child. In other words, what we, we see here is substitutionary death. Or we can go to Leviticus. Uh, Marcia and I go to Israel uh, just about every year. And when we stand on the top of, of uh, the Temple Mount, where the temple used to be, now the Dome of the Rock is there, but uh, where that was, we, as we stand there, we always are reminded of the Day of Atonement that's found in the book of Leviticus. And that is, on one day of the year, God provided, God called for the people to make a sacrifice and to bring that sacrifice, and it would be brought to the, the high priest, the chief priest, who would enter into the holy of holies in the temple and sprinkle it on the lintel post. So that, that blood now was a substitute for ours. And so we see this time and time and time again as God is showing the seriousness of sin 
and God fulfilling what he had said to, to, uh, to Adam and Eve. In the day that you take thereof and eat, you will surely die. God is fulfilling that prediction, that prophecy, by providing the substitute. And then, as I said, always, 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 throughout the Old Testament, all of it is looking forward to an event. And at the right time, at the right place that had been prophesied, at that moment, Jesus came into our world to live a sinless life and then to be the full and final sacrifice for our sin. It says this in verse 1. Uh, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. You notice there's three things. They responded. In Corinth, they responded. And in all of the world, people respond in three ways. First of all, they received the gospel. They, they believed. There are two words in the original language meaning to receive. One is, I'm going to reach out and get something. And the other is, I accept what has been given. And this is, I accept what has been given. You have received the truth about Jesus. Now, I must, I must point out that not everybody does. In fact, many, many people do not. For some, they will ignore it, hoping that, or thinking that in ignoring the issue, that they're somehow not responsible for it. Uh, some will deny that it's true. And that denial will keep them in the position that they are in now. And, but there will be those who receive it. And as the Bible says, those who receive it by faith, not because they deserve it or because they're better than anybody else, smarter than anybody else. No, not, not anything like that. But receive it by faith. The, 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 the impact of that, I'm trying to find that word, impact will come upon them and they will experience something called salvation. Which I want to talk about in just a second. And then secondly, you'll notice here in verse 3, they received it and were standing in it. Standing in it. Meaning, I've made this decision, I've accepted Christ, and now my life has changed. And day by day, I realize I have a relationship with God, and I have been forgiven, and I'm a new creature. I've received Christ. And so you see the impact of all of it, and that is we're standing in faith in this truth. Uh, now, again, those who don't receive it can't stand it. And then finally, Paul writes to the Corinthians uh, and was very great, excuse me, that uh, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and which you are being saved. The word salvation has a particular meaning in the, the original language. It, it means to rescue, rescue from a horrible thing to rescue you out. Now, 
when we talk about salvation in the Bible, what we're talking about, there, there's a sense in which salvation happened in the past. When you received Jesus, the response to that, the reaction to that was that you were saved at that moment. You were rescued from the wrath of God. And there's an element, there's an aspect of it which we could say, in the future we're going to be saved in that we will not experience that judgment of God. But here he says, our being saved. And that's the way it is with us. All of us are coming to believe. We're imperfect. We're coming to believe. We're coming to trust. And God's superintending all of that to make us right with him and bring about our best. And so, in which we are being saved. Now, verse uh, number four, if you would, would you follow me with me as we go to verse four. That he was buried and was on the third day. Now, there's always people who would ask, well, didn't he die on Friday? Is it Good Friday? Yes. Was it, don't Christians believe that he was raised on Sunday? Yes, we do. And so that's just two days, Friday, Saturday, Saturday, Sunday, two days. But what is frequently overlooked is at that time, we see it repeatedly in uh, Hebrew literature, uh, they counted inclusively. They would count, it seems to get foreign to us, but it is foreign. Uh, they would count inclusively. So they would count Friday, Saturday, Sunday, where we would count two. But at any rate, what we see is the resurrection of Jesus on the third day in accordance to that which had been predicted in the Old Testament. And that he appeared to Cephas, and then, which is the, the Apostle Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, what he's saying to the Corinthians is, there's all these people who saw Jesus. All these people who saw Jesus. They testified to the fact that he was dead and now he's alive. Verse number seven, then he appeared to James and then to uh, all of the apostles, last of all, as one a timely born, he appeared to me. All right, then, why should you believe in the resurrection? I mean, if, if we're just honest, we'd have to ask that question, why? Is there any logical reason? Let's forget faith now. Is there any logical reason that would lead you to believe in the resurrection? Let me give you some. One is he fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. Uh, as you read the Old Testament, you'll see prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. It would cover where he would be born, what kind of life he would live, what kind of work that he would do, and ultimately what kind of death that he would die, and the resurrection afterwards. So we see this time and time and time again, and the comprehensiveness in which Jesus fulfilled all of those promises, uh, well, it's mathematically uh, impossible. I mean, it's not coincidental. It was uh, an act of God to bring this about. Uh, another way in which we can know that, that 
Jesus was resurrected in a logical form would be the change in the disciples' lives. Uh, what do I mean? Well, do you remember that Jesus told Peter this very night you're going to deny me three times? Jesus was arrested on Friday night. He went through trial, six of them, on Friday night, Saturday morning. During that time, the disciples run by their own testimony. They were scared to death. They ran. They hid because they thought that now they would be arrested and they would be tried and crucified as well. And so they're hiding out. Uh, Peter does exactly what Jesus said that he would do. He goes to the courtyard. He observes the, the uh, judgment against Jesus. Three times he asks, he's asked, do you know Jesus? Aren't you one that follows Jesus? And three times he denied that he even knew Jesus, even swearing that he did. But after the resurrection, after they knew he was dead, knew that he was buried, after the resurrection, their lives are dramatically changed. At, at that point on, now they do things like in Acts chapter 2, where the denier, Peter, is now preaching before the people of Jerusalem. And he's preaching the gospel. What could change a person from a denier to being one who publicly testifies? Well, he knows. He knows truth. The truth has convinced him. His eyes have seen this resurrection. And it is in the life of those disciples, as they live and die for the cause of Christ, that they testify to us that the resurrection is indeed true. And then there's the experience of the church. I mean, we've got 20 centuries, 2,000 years of the church being suppressed and attacked. Uh, Christians martyred. We see this time in, time out, again and again through the years. Yet the church is flourishing today as there are people who give the testimony that they have believed in Christ and he has changed their lives. And so how would we explain 20 centuries, such a movement, and such testimony all over the world by people who say coming to faith in Christ has literally changed them? And then finally, there's the historical perspective. There is a professor uh, of classics who wrote this. He said, we believe other events of history with, with much less evidence. Uh, I claim to be in the story. Uh, my approach to the classics is historical. And I can tell you that often, uh, that, <laughs> I'm sorry, if this is better authenticated, there's the word, authenticated than most of the facts of ancient history. There are plenty of things that we believe about ancient times of which there's little or no facts at all or accounts uh, historically. But we, regarding the, death, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, there are many facts, many ancient documents that point back to the fact that Jesus indeed was a real person who came to live and die. 
And so we just see time and time and time again. We can go on with evidences of the resurrection. But uh, all of these come to us, plus the most important thing, as God reveals himself to us in faith. Now, what does the resurrection prove? It proves that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, in Romans chapter 1, verse number 4, it says, He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the, the Son of God. And it shows that we can be forgiven of our sins. Romans 10, 9 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so it shows us that we can be rescued. We can be forgiven because Jesus has taken care of that punishment of sin that we deserved. And finally, it shows that you're not alone. You're not alone. Christ is with you. He is in you. And you never have to face uncertain days by yourself. There is no question in my mind that there would be those of you, without me even knowing you, there would be those of you here today on the Easter who have not yet trusted Christ. Uh, maybe you've considered it, maybe you haven't. Maybe you think that because you're a good person then uh, God grades on the curve and, and you're in. God doesn't grade, grade on the curve. I, I would call on you to look at the evidences. Understand what the Bible says. Understand how God has been working in your life to bring you to this point. And then, today, turn from your sin. Say to God, I, I desire to turn away from this life and to trust Jesus to be my Savior. And he will change your life. He will transform you. And those of you who are Christians, stand in the truth. There is a risen Savior who is with you even now. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, it is in the name of Jesus that we come before you and we just ask God that your grace may come in a special way to those who haven't received Christ. There are those, you know, I would imagine, Lord, who have resisted, who have talked about not believing, taking a stand against uh, believing, and they just couldn't. I pray today, Father, that they might look at the evidence and humbly change their minds. We pray, Father, also for us who are Christians, that we might